Matthew 10, 34 to 39, part five in this series, I did not come to bring peace on the earth. 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to teach us from your word what it means to truly follow you, to follow you faithfully in the face of opposition, and especially in the face of opposition among our relatives. We ask you, Lord, to give us a love for you that exceeds all other loves that are on the earth. Grant it to us and strengthen us by the power and the grace of your Holy Spirit in our life. Convince us that this is necessary, it is true, and it is a matter of life and death. In the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen. The peace that Christ came on the earth, in this case, he says, I did not come to bring peace on the earth. What he means, we have seen, he doesn't mean that he came to guarantee and to secure that father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or any other relation will be secured and guaranteed to have peace and harmony among them. Even if in the past there was peace and harmony, there's no guarantee now in the faith in Christ that this will occur. He says what is really at stake Where is our first love? Who is our highest authority? Who is our king? Who is our Lord? Is our Lord our own whim? Or is our Lord the whim and the will and the wisdom of some other person? Even the person in our own family. Where is our supreme love? It should be with the Lord himself. As he says, in verses 37 to 39. Our supreme love, our ultimate love, our highest priority should be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our master. He's the master in heaven. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We ought to submit to him. We should be under his rulership in our life. This is what we must understand because it will be a daily occurrence Because we live every day among our own family members. We live among our own family members most of the time, day by day. And so the greatest temptation will be for us is to concede and to compromise, to bow down to the whims and the wisdom, carnal wisdom of our families. And Jesus says, no, that should not happen. It should be with himself and himself alone. The Jesus we are preaching here from the Bible 
accurately reflecting and repeating what is found in the Bible, the Holy Bible, this is the true Jesus. But it is the true Jesus that the world and superficial Christianity hates. This is the Jesus people hate. Really, they do hate this Jesus Christ. But this is the true one, and therefore we must embrace him. Sometimes people will say, there shouldn't be any division in the family. There shouldn't be any division in the family. If you're Christians, why is there disharmony in the family? There shouldn't be any division. But actually, Jesus said this. A parallel account to this, where he says similar words, is found in Luke 12, 51. Do you suppose that I came to, bring, to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. He used the word. The word that people throw up into our face to say there shouldn't be division in the family. Jesus said, no, I came to bring division in the family. 52, for from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And this, Jesus says, he came to do this. He came to do this on purpose because he wants us to bring to the surface who truly loves him, who considers him to be the priority. And this priority is a matter of salvation. People think, well, I can still be saved and compromise. I can still be saved and concede. I can still be saved and give whatever my relative is begging me, badgering me to give. I can still be saved. After all, we're not saved by works. No, we're not saved by works. We are saved by faith, but true faith is shown in fruit. And if we disobey God consistently without repentance, if we do so, it shows we don't really believe in him. So there is no way that we can and should find a way to compromise when it has to do with matters of truth and the gospel. We submit to God alone in Christ. Let's now return to Old Testament passages which illustrate this fact that we ought to have God and God alone as our ultimate authority. Our King, our Lord, our Master, our Guide, our Teacher, submit to Him. The book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Nehemiah 5, 1. Now, there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money 
for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. And then the reaction of Nehemiah is in the rest of the chapter, and we get a sense of what he thought in verse 6. Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry and these words. Then he takes action to rectify this disaster and chaos and misery that has been caused. Who caused it? Who did it? Look at verse 1. It was some Jewish brothers against other Jewish brothers. Within the nation, within the cities, within the towns, within the villages, within the clans, within the families, there was one member of the family exploiting another member of the family. Why were they not in unison desiring to please the Lord? Look what happens here. When people are not following the Lord and they're following their own wisdom for their own exploitation of others, they will exploit another family member, another brother within nation, cities, towns, villages, clans, and even in the nuclear family. This will happen. Why does this happen? This kind of injustice happen? Because they're not following the Lord. If they followed the Lord, they would not do this kind of thing. This is the kind of thing that the wicked family members would do. If the wicked family members are doing, we ought to resist it. We ought to know it's not the will of God, it's wickedness, it's not righteousness, and stand up to it, as Nehemiah did in verses 6 until the end of the chapter, 6 to 19. He stood up against it and resisted it. Chapter 13 of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13, 4 to 9. Nehemiah 13, 4. Now, prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tovia, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king after some time. However, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very evil to me 
So I threw all of Tovia's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms. And I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. What has happened here? Two relatives are in cahoots to do evil. Tovia was no good man. No good man. And then he is given accommodation in the chambers of the house of our God, it says in verse 4. He's given accommodation, a place to live there. And this has supplanted the space and the rooms used for the offerings. The offerings were supposed to be stored there. But instead, he's living there. This wicked Tovia is living there. And what does Nehemiah do? He gets rid of Tovia and all of his belongings. He says, I threw them out. I got rid of all of them. And he drove him away from the holy premises of God. And then he had to cleanse them. It says in verse 9, he had to cleanse the rooms because Tovia and Eliashib in cahoots, two relatives who were related to each other, were in cahoots to do evil and to defame and profane the house of the Lord. It took Nehemiah to stand up and say, what's wrong with you? Eliashib, the priest, he's the priest. He's supposed to be the one with authority and with the wisdom and the knowledge of the word of God from the law of God and the law of Moses to stand up to his relative and say no. But instead, he is guiding and leading and helping his relative Tovia to do wrong in the house of the Lord. He should have resisted and he should not, not have even let that happen. Nehemiah 13, 13, 23. Mixed marriages, mixed marriages, believer with unbeliever. Nehemiah 13, 23 to 29. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you, that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joyada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Nehemiah, he notices that Women from these 
nations, Ashdod 23, Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab were being married. Is there something wrong with that in and of itself? No. The problem is that when they marry foreign women, the foreign women worship foreign gods. That's one. Number two, the foreign women speak their foreign language to their children. It's natural. It's the language that they know. So they're going to speak that foreign language to their children. And the children are raised knowing Ashdod, knowing Ammon, knowing Moab, these languages, but not Hebrew. And if they don't know Hebrew, where did the children spend most of their time? Are they spending most of their time with their fathers? No, with their mothers at the home, in the home. The fathers are usually outside working in the field or working somewhere, but at home. So then, who has the opportunity to teach the children religious things? The mothers, like it happened to Timothy. Timothy's father, Acts chapter 16, verse 1, was a Greek. His mother was a Jewess, and she knew to teach him the scriptures of the Old Testament. The father did not. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says, his grandmother and his mother taught him the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17 teach that from childhood he learned the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. It was from Timothy's mother. But in this case, this is not happening. It's impossible, or it's happening on a meager scale. And also, if these men married the foreign women, what does it also tell us about the men? That they have a kind of compromised, half-hearted view, double-minded view of their own religion. Yeah, yeah, I'll teach them a little bit, but I'm not going to make a big deal about it. I'm not going to pressure my wife to learn Hebrew or pressure her to stop worshiping idols. I'm not going to insist that there can be no idols in our house. I'm not going to insist that I spend more time with our children so I can teach them the Hebrew language so that they can read the Hebrew Old Testament. They didn't have that mentality, and Nehemiah knows that. That's really what's happening here. So, Nehemiah, Nehemiah being the man of action he is with great conviction, he's like Psalm 119.53, burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. He's really upset at this. So verse 25, I contended with them, cursed them, struck some of them, pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God. He did these five things in verse 25. That they would vow not to intermarry with foreigners because of the idolatry associated with the foreigners. Not that there can be no marriage to a foreigner because Moses married the Cushite woman, Numbers 12, right? Ruth the Moabitess, she was converted to the faith in the book of Ruth, correct? Rahab, the harlot, a Canaanitess, Joshua chapter 2, she was converted to the faith. So it's possible for this to happen, but it doesn't commonly happen, so there should not be this common intermarriage. 
That was the problem. That was the sin here. Then he says, Solomon. Solomon was certainly chosen by God, beloved by God, and established by God. Yet, such a great man with great wisdom that God endowed to him who wrote the book of Proverbs, right? He built the temple, the first temple. He did these things. He was chosen by God, beloved of God. Yet, such a great man fell into this same sin. And if it could happen to him, it could certainly happen to us. If it happened to him, it could happen to us. That's why he says in 26, the foreign women caused even him to sin. But we are not endowed with great wisdom, as Solomon was. So it could easily happen to us. So don't do it. Resist it and preach and teach against it. It's a great evil. Look at that in 27. It's not a little sin. It's not a sin that can be committed and then you just ask for forgiveness later. You know how it is, people say. It's, it's easier, it's better uh, to do what you want and then ask for forgiveness. It's better to just do what you want and ask for forgiveness later. Forgiveness is easier than permission. So don't ask anybody for advice. Don't ask anybody for permission. Just do it and then ask for forgiveness later. That's the mentality of the world. That's the fleshly mentality. But he's saying here, it's a great evil. Don't do it. Don't even presume to do it. And the priest, look at this in 28. Even one of the sons of Joyada, the son of Eliashab, Eliashib, the priest, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. This Sanballat, earlier in the book of Nehemiah, he's a Horonite, meaning he's from a, another nation. He is a troublemaker, a bitter and hostile, and even a mortal troublemaker and mortal enemy of Nehemiah and the people in the land of Judah. So this enemy of God and the people of God, why in the world is anybody related to him? The pagan, the foreigner, who's also a troublemaker in our own land. Why be son-in-law of Sanballat? So what did Nehemiah do? I drove him away from me. He got rid of him. He wanted nothing to do with him to preserve the purity, to preserve the harmony, to do the will of God faithfully. Nehemiah did so. We come now to the book of Job. The book of Job. Job, according to Job 1.1, was a blameless upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Job chapter 1, verse 1. The Holy Spirit tells us this in chapter 1, verse 1. And then the Lord, in dialogue with Satan, in chapters 1 and 2, he says the same thing. 
He says this same thing. Chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord to Satan. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. That is the Lord directly in dialogue with Satan. Further, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause or without reason. This is the character of Job. He knows the Lord He follows the Lord, he fears the Lord, he seeks to live a godly life. But what has happened? In chapter 1, we have Job afflicted with four intense, severe hardships. In chapter 1, 13 to 19, four afflictions. Two enemy nations attack him and his people and his family. And then there are two natural calamities, natural disasters, that come and destroy Job's possessions and Job's people. Two plus two. Two groups of evil people and then two natural calamities. He's in utter ruin. But Job maintains his faith in verses 20 to 22. He maintains his faith. Verse 20, 120. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. He didn't sin, nor did he blame God. He maintained steadfast confidence, faith, hope in the Lord. Chapter 2. But one thing left that Job had was his health. His health. In chapter 1, the afflictions were external to him in that it did not impact his own physical body. But in chapter 2, God permits Satan to afflict his health. And for that, we pick it up in verse 4. And Satan, chapter 2, 4. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. You see, Satan, Satan thinks that Job is a skin saver. That is, as long as his, as his own skin is not harmed, and if somebody else is it's out there, he's really a selfish man. But once you touch his skin, once you touch his physical body, then you'll find out the real Job. You'll find out who the real man is. Then let's see. Who is this real man, and what does he do to maintain his faithfulness? Verse 7, 7 to 10. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, 
Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Satan is granted permission to strike or smite Job with sore boils. That is, with pus in the skin or on the skin that's really painful when it develops from, it says, the sole of his foot, which means he could not walk or he could hardly walk and there would be pain when he's walking. And even, it says, to the crown of his head, to the top of his head, all over his body, he has this really painful, sore affliction. It's hard to put on clothes. It's hard to do anything. You can't move because once it rubs against the sore boil on the skin, it's going to be painful. It doesn't say how long he had it, but he had it long enough long enough, and then what resources does he have? Does he have the best, the brightest, the most skilled physician in the land? Job was a rich man, and suddenly his riches are gone. Much of them are gone. Did he have a great physician to consult? Look at what happened in verse 8. He did not. He had a potsherd. Look at that. A pot shard, a shard or a shard of a pot. What is that? Pots are often made with clay. And when it is shattered and destroyed because of what happened in chapter 113 to 19, houses are falling apart and falling down, crashing, then things in the house are crushed and obliterated, scattered. They become uh, smashed. And so a pot shirt is just a piece of pottery, broken piece of pottery. So he's barely got a broken piece of pottery. He doesn't have any other kinds of tools. He's went from riches to rags just like that. And all he's got is a broken piece of pottery. And what's he doing for relief? He's got the piece of pottery and he's scraping his skin painfully, boil after boil after boil, all over his skin. What would you do in that situation? Wouldn't you be tempted to curse God? Wouldn't you be tempted to curse? Wouldn't you be tempted to lose faith, grow weary? And then look for consolation from others and advice from others. And especially advice from your own wife. And in this case, it doesn't look like he was consulting her, but she spoke up, which often happens. Then his wife said to him, it doesn't say he asked her, well, what do you think? Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Why, why are you still a man of faith? Why are you still a man of integrity? 
Why are you doing this? Why are you steadfast? Why are you immovable? Why is it that you are still single-mindedly focused on believing in the Lord? Why do you do that? And what comes out of her mouth? The words of Satan. The wife is actually speaking the words of Satan. Because it says in 2 verse 5, Touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So what Satan wanted for Job to curse God, Satan fills the heart of Job's wife to say, curse God and die. Just curse him and then you will be blaspheming God and God will be angry with you and then he will instantly kill you like he instantly killed Ananias and Sapphira, like he instantly killed the Corinthians at the Lord's Supper. He'll just immediately wipe you out, and then you won't have to be in pain. You won't have to keep scraping your body. This was the advice, the evil advice of his wife. What does Job do? Verse 10, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. He compares her to foolish women. Foolish women are like this. Foolish women don't understand what? Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What do foolish women think? Well, my life is always supposed to be happy. My life is always supposed to be pleasant. I'm always supposed to have plenty of money and security. I need the tenderness and love of my husband. I always must have it. And if I don't have it, then there's something wrong with him. There's something wrong with life. There's something wrong with God. Oh, oh my, oh me. Isn't this often the reaction of wives and women? Why isn't everything going my way? That's what he's saying there. He's teaching her we're supposed to not only accept good from God, but accept evil. By evil, adversity, trials, temptations, pain, suffering. This is the way life is supposed to be. Yes, I married you, wife, to provide for you and to protect you and then to preach to you. I did that. But at times, there's going to be struggles, there's going to be temptations, there's going to be hardships in life. Don't you realize that that's what God has ordained? He had to teach her, remind her of that, because it had escaped her mind at this point. That then, did Job sin when he scolded, rebuked, reminded his wife? There are interpreters who believe that. They think that in chapter 1, verse 21, when Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There are some interpreters who say Job sinned. He shouldn't have said that. He did wrong. But verse 22 says, the Holy Spirit says in verse 22, Through all this Job did not sin nor did he blame God. He didn't up to this point. Nor did he right after he rebuked his wife, verse 10. 
In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He didn't sin when he corrected or rebuked his own wife. He didn't say, well, she is my wife. Well, I don't want any more strife. Well, you know, she does make a good point. Her upbringing was not the same as mine. Her knowledge is not the same as mine. No excuses. He just told her what she needed to hear. But it wasn't only with his wife. Chapter 6. Let's go to chapter 6. Job 6. 6, 14 and 15. Job 6, 14. This is Job who speaks. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend, lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis which vanish. Job is in despair. There's lots of misery he's experiencing day by day. And he's saying his friend and his brothers they should be kind to him. They should not be deceitful. They should be kind to him because if they persist in unkindness, if they persist in deceitfulness, then he might fall away from the faith. He might stop fearing God Almighty. And that shouldn't happen. Nobody should be doing anything to one another in the family or among friends to harm the spiritual life of another. And he compares them, the brothers. He said, my brothers, verse 15, have acted deceitfully like a wadi. Now, why does he say wadi? A wadi is a brook or a creek. It is a transliterated Hebrew word. And our English counterpart would be a brook or a creek. But... A seasonal brook, a seasonal creek. In the land and in that area, he's not technically in the land of Israel, but he's quite near the land of Israel. He's in the land of Edom, Job is. He's living in the land of Edom, which is even worse and more arid, more dry, unproductive than the land of Judah, the land of Israel. Because in the land of Israel... Twice a year, especially, it's not usually watered with lots of lakes and lots of rivers that are annual or, or regular perennial rivers. That's not usually the way it is in the land of Canaan. But the land of Edom is worse. And he says that my brothers are like a wadi, like a seasonal stream. Now, not a seasonal stream in the land of Israel because twice a year, in the fall and in the spring, during the rainy seasons, those beds, those brook beds or creek beds will be full of water. But otherwise, they vanish. They evaporate. They disappear. And it's even worse in the land of Edom. Even worse in the land of Edom. So these people, my, my own brothers, who are supposed to, be near me, and we'll see in chapter 42, they w walked away from him for a while. They, were, they just disappeared. Where are they? My own brothers. 
They have acted deceitfully. They're like a disappearing wadi, a disappearing seasonal stream in an arid land, in the land of Edom, which is worse than the land of Israel. My own brothers could not stick with me. Job 19. Job 19, 13. 19, 13 to 29. 19, 13. Job speaks again, and he's speaking of what God has accomplished. 19.13. Both, first the negative, and then where his hope is, the positive. 19.13. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, And my intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I am a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he does not answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. And I am loathsome to my own Brothers, even young children despise me. I rise up and they speak against me. All my associates abhor me and those I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Pity me, pity me, pity me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Now the hope, 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book that with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. And as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last He will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes shall see and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how shall we persecute him? And what pretext for a case against him can we find? Then be afraid of the sword for yourselves. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword so that you may know there is judgment. Job says that his brothers, his acquaintances, and by acquaintance, he doesn't mean it as we often do in English. Acquaintance means we know somebody by name and face, but we don't know very much about him. He's using the, the sense of acquaintance in the opposite way intimately acquainted with all my ways, like it says in Psalm 139. Uh, By this acquaintance, he's talking about somebody he knows very closely in a personal way. That's how he means it in 13. 14, my relatives, my intimate friends, those who live in my house, my maids, verse 15. Verse 16, my servant, I have to, the servant or the slave is supposed to immediately respond. But now he has to implore him. 
He has to plead. He has to beg for the slave to do anything for him, to help him. Even the breath of Job is offensive to his wife. Why so? Because he's not eating very much. And you know what happens when we don't eat? Our breath is offensive. It stinks to those near us. Correct? And if we don't have the resources to brush our teeth, to have a fresh breath, then we are offensive to those near us. And we are most often, husbands are most often closest to their wives. And he says, my breath is offensive to my wife. My wife keeps saying, walk away from me. You stay away from me. Don't, come be, don't be near me. She keeps saying that because of the offense of the smell of the breath. I am loathsome to my own brothers. And then the others. The young children used to respect him. They don't anymore. The associates used to love him. Now they hate him. He's got nobody around him. Do you remember in Psalm 142, verse 4? He says, no one cares for my soul. 142, 4. No one cares for my soul. Job is left all alone. When he was rich, he had everybody around him. Now that he's a pauper, nobody wants to be around him. Not even his own wife. But who does he have? 19, 23 to 29. He has the Lord. He has his Redeemer, 19, 25 and 26 and 27. 19, 25 to 27. He has the Lord Jesus. He means the Lord Jesus here. The Lord Jesus Christ is his only solace, his only helper, his only security in time of need. Everyone else has ditched him, but not the Lord Jesus. Job 42. 42 Verse, we'll read 42, 10 and 11. Or 10 to, let's just read the paragraph, 10 to 17. Job 42, 10. And note especially what happens in verse 11, 42, 11. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job, when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. And he named the first Jemima and the second Keziah and the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons for generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Job was initially very wealthy. But it says here in this passage 
when he was restored, God gave him double the wealth, both in terms of cattle, possessions like that, but also children. He gave him much blessings when he was restored. When he was rich initially, everybody was around him. When he is rich now, what happens in verse 11? Then, remember, after he was restored with all of these riches, then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him. Where were they before? In the middle of the book, he's complaining that they all ditched him. They all walked away from him. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. Why? Because he was a poor man and a sick man. Who wants to hang around poor and sick men? Nobody. But when people have health and wealth, then you have many friends. When you have health and wealth, when you have reputation because of your health and wealth, then you have many friends and everybody will be seeking your presence and calling you friend, brother, flatter you, left and right, but they all disappeared. They all disappeared. Now they come and now they eat bread with him in his house. Well, why did they not supply bread in the meantime and eat with him in his house? Meantime, when he was suffering, they, all gone. they were all gone. Now they come and now they console him and now they comfort him. Where was his consolation? Where was his comfort? In the middle of the book of Job when he was suffering. They wanted nothing to do with him. And also it says, each one gave one piece of money and each a ring of gold. Why now? Why not before? When he needed it. He could have used the piece of money and he could have used the ring of gold for monetary purposes, to buy what he needed, to do what he needed for his own health, for his own maintenance, instead of living a very meager life like a pauper. They gave it now. This is what will happen. This will happen to you and to me. The people who are around us will be around us when there is some advantage that we have. So you must, we must always, like Job, maintain faith and believe and trust in God and God alone. Don't trust in man, in mortal man in whom there is no hope. Don't trust man, only God. Let's go now to the book of Psalms. Psalm 3. Psalm 3, at the beginning of the psalm, which may be a superscription title or maybe verse 1 in your Bible, Psalm 3, verse 1, it says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. We already noted that in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 13 to 18, Absalom, his own son, rises up as a rebel in revolt to become the king and threatens the life of David. His own son Absalom rose up as a threat to the life 
and longevity of David, his own father. Absalom did this, David's own son. And he cries out to God for help. There's hardly a helper around. His own son is not a helper, but a harmer in a fatal way. Psalm 27. Psalm 27, verse 10. 27.10. I'll read it as it is in the, the New American Standard Bible, but I will also mention how it ought to be rendered. 27.10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. This could be rendered if my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. If, then, instead of for, but. Because there is no evidence, aside from this verse, that his father or mother ever did truly forsake him. There's no evidence of that. But the conditional statement is made, And where is his trust? If the conditional statement is made, or if it actually did happen, where is David's confidence? The Lord will take me up. If my own parents will not remain faithful and trustworthy toward me, if they won't, my own parents won't. Why? Why might that happen? Because... David stands for righteousness. He stands for the gospel. He believes in Christ. But if his father and mother do not, or if they did not, then he's not bothered by it. Ultimately, he knows he has God himself. Psalm 31. Psalm 31. Psalm 31 and verse 11. 31, 11. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. David now has the same dilemma, the same hardship that that Job did. He's saying that I have many adversaries, my neighbors are my adversaries, my acquaintances, my acquaintances, and those who see me in the street who used to say, hello there, hey there, hello Mr. David, used to use um, respectful greetings, but now not anymore. He's an object of dread. Those who see me in the street flee from me. They hide behind the corners. They hide behind other people. They hide behind facilities. They don't want to talk to him. They don't want to greet him. They ignore him. Those who were once intimate are no longer. 38, Job 30, I'm sorry, Psalm. Psalm 38, Psalm 38, verse 11. 38, 11. My loved ones... And my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my kinsmen stand afar off. Who has he lost here? His loved ones 
his friends, his kinsmen. They want nothing to do with him. Psalm 88. Psalm 88, verse 8. Psalm 88, verse 8. You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. Everyone has disappeared. And who is responsible, like in the book of Job? God. How did God do this? God did it by faithfulness to his word and the strength of the Holy Spirit. He has maintained his faith, but those who have deserted him, they are gone, and this is on purpose by God. You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. It's on purpose. Just like Jesus said it was on purpose. Matthew 10, 34 to 39. And in Luke 12, as we read earlier. 142, verse 4. Psalm 142, verse 4. David is, as it says at the beginning, he's in the cave. He is fleeing for his life. He is fleeing to protect himself from the hatred, the malicious and fatal hatred of King Saul, which we will find in 1 Samuel 22 and 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, and 1 Samuel 24, verse 3 when he was in the cave. And what does he say? 142.4 Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. This is, this is the outcome of David's faithfulness to God. This is the result of David clinging to God, that he doesn't have people around him who truly care for his soul. Everybody around him is seeking his life. Everybody around him wants to do whatever they want to do. They don't want to follow the Lord. And evidence is that they don't want to follow the Lord is that they seek for his life. They want to put him to death. They wished he wasn't around. So they have disappeared, and if they ever come in proximity to him, they want to get rid of him. No one cares for my soul. We must understand this reality. If we don't understand this reality, we will not cling to the Lord faithfully. We have to cling to him faithfully and until the very end. Let's read a few more quick passages in the prophets. First in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1. Jeremiah 9, 
1 to 6. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go from them. For all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. And they bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone be on guard against his brother, and do not trust any brother against his neighbor, and do not trust any brother. But, but because every brother deals craftily, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer, and everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth, they have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Who is it that cannot be trusted? In verse 4, brother and neighbor, because they use their words craftily. They use their words deceitfully. They speak lies. And through their lies, they refuse to know God and they persecute the people of God. That's the nature of these evildoers. 12, chapter 12 of Jeremiah. Chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah 12, 5. If you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Even they have cried, cried aloud after you. Do not believe them. Although they may say nice things to you. It's difficult and extremely difficult when you have to deal with your own brothers, the house of your own father, the household of your own father, because they will deal treacherously with you. They might cry aloud after you. They might say, oh, yes, yes, yes. You're my brother. I need you. I love you. He says, do not believe them, although they may say nice things to you. They're going to do that. They're going to say everything in that way in order to disarm you. Then the passage we read in Jeremiah chapter 42, in Je- uh, 44. In Jeremiah chapter 44, which has a brief parallel in Jeremiah 7, but 44 has this lengthy passage. Where does the problem reside? It resides with all the people, men and women and children, husbands and wives. Certainly that's the case. As it says in 44.9, Have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, the wickedness of the kings of Judah, and the wickedness of their wives, your own wickedness and the wickedness of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? 
Verse 15, Then all the men who were aware that their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods, along with all the women who were standing by as a large assembly, including all the people who were living in Patros, in the land of Egypt, responded to Jeremiah, saying, And then verse 9, And said the women, When we were burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and were pouring out drink offerings to her, was it without our husbands that we made for her sacrificial cakes in her image and poured out drink offerings to her? Verse 20, Then Jeremiah said to all the people, to the men and women, even to all the people who were giving him such an answer. Verse 24, Then Jeremiah said to all the people, including all the women, hear the word of the Lord. All Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Verse 25. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as follows. As for you and your wives, you have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled it with your hands, saying, We will certainly perform our vows that we have vowed to burn sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. Jeremiah's answer. Go ahead and confirm your vows and certainly perform your Vows 26. Nevertheless, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who are living in the land of Egypt. Verse 27. Behold, I am watching over them for evil and not for good, and all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt will meet their end by the sword and by famine until they are completely gone. It's very clear that there is corporate sin happening. Everybody is involved. But we know in Scripture that the husband is the head of the wife and men are the leaders in society. Yet in this case, where are the men? The men are not resisting their wives. They're not resisting their wives, but they are agreeing with their wives and saying, yes, yes, go ahead, dear. Go ahead, go ahead, love. Go ahead. Go ahead, sweetie. Go ahead and worship the gods. Because even the women say, was it without our husbands? They said, yes, go ahead and do it. When the husband should have said, no, don't do it. Stop doing it. We will certainly be condemned by God if we continue with your practices, your evil practices. It says that the husbands were well aware. They were aware. Verse 15. Then all the men who were aware, they were aware. The husbands have guilt for not following righteousness and expecting their wives and families and communities to follow righteousness. And the women, being typically the instigators, they wanted to do it. And the husband said, yes, dear, go ahead. Yes, dear, go ahead. All sin. And finally, we come to the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Micah chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers and the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. 
Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe, and a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post a watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend from her who lies in your bosom. Guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously, daughter rises up against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. The prophet is saying he's like a harvester who's going eagerly to find the harvest, but there's nothing there. And that's the way it is when he's looking at the people of his nation There's no godly one there. There's no upright man there. I can't find anybody. Everybody is doing evil and they're weaving their evil together. They cooperate with each other to weave evil, to sow evil, to spread evil. The best of these people are like thorns and thistles, briars and thorns, which are worthless. Can you eat them? No, you can't even touch them without poking yourself and harming yourself, correct? They're worthless. That's the way the people are, including whom? Is it just the strangers? Is it just the people who live in a certain neighborhood in our city? No. Look at this, verse 5. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend, your own friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. Who is this? Assuming the addressee is a man, he's talking about the wife. The wife lies in the bosom of the husband. You can't even trust your wife, he's saying. Why? Six. This is the verse, verse six, is the verse that Jesus quotes in both Matthew and Luke. For son treats father contemptuously, daughter rises up against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own household. All of these examples that we have surveyed in the Old Testament, we might think, well, that's just in the Old Testament. And Micah's saying it right here. But what did Jesus do? In Matthew 10, he connected this Old Testament truth to the New Testament. What Jesus ordained in the word of Christ in the Old Testament, he's also ordained it now in the New Testament. It will certainly happen to us. Knowing this beforehand, let's equip ourselves, not be discouraged, but equip ourselves with the wisdom of God and the power of God to do his will always, no matter who opposes us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.